a statesman of the revolution. Jealous of liberty himself, he wished its enjoyment to all. And while many around him were trafficking in their fellow men, Lewis was engaged in breaking their shackles asunder. Long may the citizens of Pennsylvania hold his memory and reverence as an enlightened statesman, a profound lawyer, and a useful citizen. And to few is the state indebted more than to William Lewis for her freedom from that diabolical crime of holding part of her citizens in slavery to the rest. The memory of this just man shall be blessed. That was taken from the obituary of Judge William Lewis, born in 1752 in Edgemont, Pennsylvania, making him a Delco boy. Lewis's marks on both Philadelphia and early U.S. history are numerous. By the time he was just 21 years old, he was admitted to the Bar Association. Before the age of 30, William Lewis was instrumental in drafting the Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery in Pennsylvania back in 1780 almost 100 years after the first recorded document protesting slavery was written by the Germantown Friends in Philadelphia in 1688. While the act might sound like a big step towards ending slavery, at least here in Pennsylvania, I have to call out that it didn't actually provide freedom for anyone currently enslaved. Men of the Revolution, like William Lewis and George Bryan, among others, wanted enslaved Americans to feel some of the freedom they now felt being separated from Great Britain. That's not at all the same as someone who was a slave. The act afforded freedom to any persons of color born after 1780 once they reached the age of 28. People were born enslaved and had to earn their freedom after serving white colonists in Pennsylvania for almost 30 years. While the act restricted Pennsylvanians from bringing new slaves into the state, it still allowed the sales of existing slaves. Ten years later, William Lewis became Judge Lewis. He served on both the United States District Court and the Supreme Court by the time he was 40 years old. This is the sort of guy we'd see today on the cover of a magazine with Philadelphia's top 40 under 40. Not long before his appointment as a judge, Lewis purchased a property in what we know today as the Fairmount section of West Philadelphia. In the late 1700s, this area was completely undeveloped, nothing but forests or farmland along the Schuylkill River. It was a place where someone would build a country house to get away from the noise and the crowds of the city. And that's what William Lewis did. He built a home he called Somerville, something larger and certainly quieter than his primary residence in Old City at 3rd and Walnut Streets. Somerville was a federal-style house. From the outside, it looked like a large cream-colored box, longer in the front than the sides, with two dormer windows peeking up from the roof and lots of windows along the front of the home. Many Philadelphians may not be familiar with Somerville, but if you say the words Strawberry Mansion, most locals will know exactly what you're talking about either the mansion itself or the area of Philadelphia around Judge William Lewis's summer home, which is named after that residence. Strawberry Mansion is one of a number of historic properties in Philadelphia's Fairmount Park. As we transition from the season of the witch to a winter wonderland, I can't think of a better way to bridge the seasons in Philadelphia than to share with you the history of the mansions of Fairmount. The wonderful events held there all year long, and for some of these properties, the hauntings. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. 
There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Judge William Lewis lived part-time at Somerville until he died in 1819 when he was 67. While researching his life and his home in Fairmount Park, I found a reference to a moniker he picked up early in life. Distinguished ugliness. That's such an unfair turn of a phrase. In paintings, Lewis has a very long, thin face, and the same can be said of his nose, but I wouldn't call him ugly. Honestly, I wouldn't call anyone ugly. But I think he was referred to this way not only because of his appearance, but according to some historians, he had a habit of excessively smoking cigars. Some said he smoked them constantly, which might have been off-putting to those around him. A few years after the death of Judge William Lewis, another judge took up residence in Somerville, the mansion in the woods not far from the Schuylkill River. Judge Joseph Hemphill and his wife lived at Somerville for 20 years. During that time, they greatly expanded the property, adding two identical Greek Revival wings to either side of the main house. I called the original house a large box. These wings don't look much different, although imagine two boxes standing on their ends. So they're tall and narrow, where the original house is a box on its side. Long, but not very tall. My description of this mansion may not sound very appealing. It is a beautiful property, but it is very simple. It's large, and perhaps it's the size that made it such a remarkable home for the time. It's very different than some of the old row houses just blocks away in West Philadelphia that have turrets and spindled porches, steeply pitched roofs with gingerbread and ornate cornices. I prefer something with a little more character. The family of Judge Hemphill sold the mansion a few years after his death. In 1846, the new owner leased the property to a couple who were farmers. And that's when Somerville was renamed Strawberry Mansion. For a time, the lessees hosted picnics on the grounds at Strawberry Mansion. These were festive affairs for Philadelphians to get an afternoon in the country. But one of these picnics turned tragic in 1866. After the picnic ended, attendees realized a young woman disappeared. A neighbor of the mansion told police he heard a woman scream. Then the sound of a gunshot. Weeks later, this unnamed woman was still missing, and police feared her disappearance was actually a homicide. I wonder if these picnics were part of the reason the owner decided to sell Strawberry Mansion, because three years after the presumed murder of a young woman, a man named George Staub died at another picnic. Initially, police believed George was murdered by another picnic-goer. But witnesses came forward who saw George Staub staggering around the grounds of Strawberry Mansion, filled with drink. He'd had one too many hard lemonades. George Staub died as a result of a fall into a nearby quarry. His death was eventually ruled accidental as a result of his severe intoxication. What were these farmers serving at their picnics? Strawberry Mansion remained a private property until 1871 when it was sold to the city of Philadelphia for $102,000. In 
That seemed like a lot of money to me, even for a house that size in 1871. Today, that money would be a little over $2.1 million, and that's actually less than I thought Strawberry Mansion is worth today. So clearly, I have no comprehension of market value, either during the Victorian era or present time. A few years after it was sold to the city, there was a little bit of a scandal surrounding a dine and dash at Strawberry Mansion in 1878. Apparently, a group of somewhat prominent men, city councilmen, manufacturers with factories along the Schuylkill River, and what the Philadelphia Times newspaper called small-fry politicians, stopped at Strawberry Mansion for an impromptu dinner of good food and lots of good wine, while they decided what to do about water pollution from said factory owners and easements for waterways in Maniunk. They dined, and then they dashed. If you're unfamiliar with that phrase, it means they left without paying the check, and it was a hefty check, about $300. Two years later, the bill was still unpaid, and although everyone knew who was at that dinner, their memories seemed to fail them. One councilman in particular remembered being at the affair, but couldn't remember anyone else who was in attendance. For almost 90 years, Strawberry Mansion has been open to the public for house tours, lectures, civic or social events. You can rent it for weddings and other private affairs. It closed for a few years between 2009 and 2013 while undergoing renovations. Tours are available between March and December on Wednesdays through Sundays between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. In February, it's open on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. If you've listened to any of the Holiday Happenings episodes, you've heard me talk about the seasonal house tours with Victorian Christmas trees and caroling at Strawberry Mansion and some of the other mansions in Fairmount Park. Some of the highlights of Strawberry Mansion include a collection of antique toys in the attic, amazing antique dolls. Okay, I know some of you are not fans of antique dolls, but I grew up with them. My mother and my grandmother collected them. I've got an old doll collection. The dolls at Strawberry Mansion are parts of history. There are so many different styles, some from all over the country. And I promise there are no stories of these dolls coming to life at night in Strawberry Mansion. The mansion has countless antiques and artifacts, many dating back to the 1700s when Judge William Lewis owned the property. One of the most curious pieces of furniture there is a commode chair. At first glance, it looks like a beautiful tufted Victorian chair with brocade fabric. But when you peek under the seat cushion, there is a commode hidden underneath. A porcelain bowl set in wood where someone could, well, you know how that works. There's another story, though, about Strawberry Mansion. Not the house, but the section of Philadelphia called Strawberry Mansion because of its proximity to the home in Fairmount Park. And that story is gentrification. Like many Philadelphia neighborhoods, white flight hit this section of Philly in the 50s and 60s. When that happened, income levels dropped because businesses left too. It became harder for the residents who stayed in that community or moved there to make a decent living. Now you've got people who've lived in communities like Strawberry Mansion their entire lives and couldn't afford to purchase a house in their own neighborhood. Developers descend here like vultures. They offer people two to three times what they claim is the value of someone's property. Then they flip it and sell it for five to ten times their original purchase price. People are getting swindled. 
The good news here is there are people working with residents to help them maintain and, when needed, make home improvements to stay in their homes and increase the value of their property, as well as provide education about what it really means when someone knocks on your door promising you a wad of cash, when if you had the support you needed to care for your home, it would be valued at so much more than what you're being offered. As much as I love the history of the mansions in Fairmount Park, you cannot ignore the challenges in the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, which according to the State of the City Pew report from April 2019, 20% of the population of this neighborhood has left since 2000. This neighborhood has the second highest violent crime rate in Philadelphia. Philadelphia police are trying to track down the gunman who shot a man in Strawberry Second Mansion. Struck by a stray bullet in the city's Strawberry Mansion neighborhood. Shooting this time in Strawberry Mansion. This happened just after Officers nine responded to a call about a car crash in Strawberry Mansion and found a man suffering from police three gunshots. Police are investigating shot. after three people are shot in the city's Strawberry Mansion section. Two of these victims are teenagers. Strawberry Mansion High School has barely one-tenth of the students it was designed to educate. 2021 will be the final year students graduate from Strawberry Mansion High School. And adjacent to this is the edge of Fairmount Park, where the largest of seven historic mansions sits, a building that some locals think of as just an old, maybe even haunted house. It's a really difficult dichotomy, but there are people who have never left Strawberry Mansion. They've never left the neighborhood. They're turning vacant lots into community gardens and desperately trying to help others hold on to their personal history where they grew up. Strawberry Mansion is the largest of the historic homes in Fairmount. Some of these properties are also called the Charms of Fairmount Park, and each has a key charm that represents their house. Strawberry Mansion's charm is a strawberry. It's pretty obvious which key charm represents Lemon Hill, a lemon. And that's the next Fairmount Mansion we'll visit on today's journey through Fairmount Park. Robert Morris wasn't born in Philadelphia. He moved here from Great Britain when he was 10 years old in 1744. By the time he was 16, he'd left school, worked as an apprentice in a counting room, and over the next 30 years built himself a fortune as a merchant and an importer. The Stamp Act of 1765 levied heavy taxes on his business, and you can guess that was a big factor in Morris's decision to support the colonists in the fight against the crown for America's freedom from Great Britain. Robert Morris was a self-made man. He didn't finish his education, he didn't serve in politics or the military, but he was uniquely positioned to be a part of the inner circle of the American Revolution because of his wealth. Money talks, and it absolutely talked in 1775. Morris even loaned money to the government, which was used to support the Continental Army's efforts in the Battle of Trenton. After the war, he drafted a proposal for a national bank, which was swiftly approved as the Bank of North America. This proposal was written by a man who never finished the equivalent of what we consider high school. Morris was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He served in the Pennsylvania State Legislature and a state senator. He could have been the Secretary of the Treasury, but instead suggested George Washington offer the position to Alexander Hamilton. You'd think someone who had enough money they could loan it out to the government would end his life a wealthy man. But that's not the case. I wasn't able to find information about when or even if the government repaid Morris's loans. 
He also made some unwise real estate investments after the Revolutionary War. He borrowed money to finance these investments, then hid from his responsibilities at his farm in the country by the Schuylkill River. Robert Morris, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a man who was able not only to help finance the Revolutionary War from his own great wealth, but secure foreign loans for the government, was arrested in 1798 for non-payment of his debts. He was incarcerated in the Philadelphia debtors' prison. I've read conflicting reports about what happened to the hills. That's the name of the farm he built along the Schuylkill River. According to the Fairmount Charms website, Robert Morris was forced to sell his farm to a Philadelphia merchant and importer named Henry Pratt in 1799. But other reports from history indicate that while Robert Morris was in debtor's prison, his assets were claimed and sold to pay off his creditors. By the time he was released, everything he owned was gone. Robert Morris died in 1806 at 73 years old. He's buried in Christ Church Burial Ground with other notable Philadelphians like Benjamin Franklin, Dr. Benjamin Rush, and Dr. Philip Singh Physic. In 1800, Henry Pratt built a beautiful home on the grounds of Morris Farm, a property he called Lemon Hill. Before losing his farm, Robert Morris had a greenhouse on the grounds, and in the greenhouse, he grew lemon trees. Henry Pratt had a large family and needed a home big enough for his sizable brood. With his first wife, Frances Moore, Henry had four children. He then had six children with his second wife, Elizabeth Dundas, and four more children with his third wife, Susanna Kerr. Fourteen children in 16 years. All of his wives died young and spent almost their entire married lives pregnant. Although he wasn't an architect, Henry Pratt designed Lemon Hill. Similar to Strawberry Mansion, Lemon Hill is a federal-style home, but it is so much grander and more interesting architecturally. The front of the home has curved his and hers staircases leading up to the front door. That's a set of stairs on either side of the front entrance. It's a Victorian term for staircases like these because ladies went up one side and gentlemen went up the other. It would have been scandalous for a man to see a lady's ankles as she went up the stairs, and that's what I like to call these types of staircases. There are ornate porches on either side of the house, and the rear wall of the home is curved, which means the rooms on the inside of the back of the house are oval. Three stories of oval rooms, which are absolutely stunning. Even the wooden molding and the doors in these rooms are curved. Henry Pratt and his family lived in Lemon Hill for close to 40 years. The property was purchased in 1844 by the city of Philadelphia, and this was the first parcel of land that formed Fairmount Park. From 1926 until 1955, Fisk Kimball lived in and restored Lemon Hill. Kimball was the very first director of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, so you can imagine there was probably no one better to restore this historic home to its original splendor. The views from Lemon Hill are quite stunning. From the balconies, you can look out over Boathouse Row and the Schuylkill River, or you can catch a glimpse of Philadelphia's skyline. It is a wonderful spot for taking pictures. Lemon Hill is not available to rent for private events, but like most of the mansions in Fairmount, they offer historic house tours during the holidays, concerts, lectures, educational and social programs throughout the year. Last year, Philadelphia's first pop-up ice bar was in Lemon Hill, I didn't get a chance to see that, and while 50-year-old me may think that's a little too trendy for a 220-year-old mansion, it's the fact that it is trendy that brings new visitors to Lemon Hill and carries this history forward with new generations. 
Lemon Hill is open for tours from late April through December on Thursdays through Sundays between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Between January and March, the home is open by appointment only. You may be wondering whether Strawberry Mansion or Lemon Hill are haunted. I wondered about that too. There were times throughout their history where they may have been unoccupied and rumors were bound to have sprung up. In October 2010, our local CBS affiliate visited Lemon Hill with a medium who claimed the spirit of Henry Pratt was in the mansion, and he had very specific instructions for the Department of Parks and Recreation regarding the care and keeping of Lemon Hill. Well, today's stop on our haunted Philly tour is a beautiful mansion built by Henry Pratt. It is Lemon Hill. It's in Fairmount Park. Spiritual medium Marissa Liza Pell visited the home and found that Henry is still there. He's with us, so we're going to, I guess, bring him through and talk to him about what he wants you to do with the house, because I believe he has some very firm instructions. Oh, my okay? dear, you're a so, gym. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Henry's here, and he's telling me that you guys have an amazing collection of plateware or painted plateware, okay, and he's telling me that one piece is missing from the museum. Do you understand that? The museum did loan us a collection of Staffordshire with all the first scenes in old Philadelphia. I don't believe we have the whole collection. Okay. I think the rest of it is in the museum. Because he wants the rest of it. <laughs> he did tell me something recently broken here. I don't know. If According to medium Marissa Pell, Henry Pratt likes when the house is dusted. Pratt's spirit also asked that some trim get painted, a task which the staff said was already scheduled. Then he complained about a woman named Terry. It turned out Terry was the daughter-in-law of one of the staff members, and she helps when school children come to tour Lemon Hill. Henry Pratt said Terry needs to do a better job of keeping the children organized when they're in the mansion. He felt she lets them run around a bit too much. Apparently, Henry Pratt is keeping very close tabs on Lemon Hill from the afterlife. Lemon Hill was named for the lemon trees in Robert Morris's greenhouse. Those trees have been gone for hundreds of years, but there are ghostly scents on the grounds. Some people claim you can occasionally smell lemon trees. That scent is accompanied by the spirits of farmhands, who used to work the Morris farm before it was sold to Henry Pratt. In 2013, Philadelphia Magazine included Lemon Hill in a list of spooky places near Philadelphia that aren't Eastern State Penitentiary. But all they had to say about the hauntings at Lemon Hill were reports of spirits wandering the grounds. Lemon Hill also has its own woman in white. According to the book Haunted Philadelphia by Darcy Ort, two police officers saw a woman in a white dress walking from Lemon Hill towards the Schuylkill River. They feared for her safety and called out to her, but she didn't respond. Their concerns grew, so they quickly pulled over and got out of the car to speak directly to this woman. And before they reached her, she disappeared. This happened sometime in the last 25 to 30 years. I wasn't able to find any other reports of this woman in white on the grounds of Lemon Hill. There are stories of women in white not only in Pennsylvania, but all over the country. I wonder who this woman in white could have been. It's possible she was any one of Henry Pratt's three wives. All of them probably died in Lemon Hill. And has anyone ever wondered about Henry Pratt? Each one of his three wives died. And only two of his 14 children outlived their father. I know, we're talking about the early 1800s. 
Life expectancy wasn't what it is today, but still, the death of all three wives. That makes me pause. As for Strawberry Mansion, I didn't uncover any haunted tales. Considering the nefarious goings-on during or after those picnics in the mid-1800s, I expected to find a few ghost stories, but my research came up empty. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.